Welcome to Frame of Reference, informed, intelligent conversations about the issues and challenges facing everyone in today's world. In-depth interviews with Sauk County's leaders and professionals to help you expand and inform your frame of reference. Brought to you by the Max FM Digital Network. Now here's your host, Raul Labresh. And welcome to another episode, podcast of Frame of Reference, your uh, one definitive source for Sauk County uh, discussions uh, and uh, discussions with leaders in our area that uh, you probably even see around the area. And I'm sure my guest today is one of those folks. Uh, He's a gentleman that has been on the show with me a number of times when we were still doing mornings at McFarland's. Um, And actually, he doesn't know this, but he is one of the reasons why I really was motivated to move to a different format and uh, something like frame of reference because the kinds of discussions we were having really resonated with me as uh, an interviewer and someone that likes to uh, be in this arena. Um, it, it struck me as this is the kind of conversation I want to have. And I, mm. I'm foolish enough to think that there are other people out there that want to listen to these kinds of conversations. But my guest today is the one, the only, Dr. John McAuliffe. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us on Frame of Reference. Thank you for having me, bro. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. It, it, it's been just a joy getting to know you better. We've, we've known each other for years and years and years, but we haven't really known each other um, beyond the you know cursory, hi, how are you kinds of things. I think I knew your wife better than I knew you just from mm-hmm. our experience at the River Arts Center. But um, I know this has been a, a tough time for anyone in your business. Um, but uh, what is it, 28 years that you've been practicing? Am I remembering that right? No, I've been here 40, 43 years 43 now. years in town. Yeah. That's been a recurrent number with this show already. I've had yeah. people that are 43 years of doing something. Charlie okay. Luthen and Cliff Thompson, 43 oh, okay. years is a big okay. thing. So I must be uh, tied into a particular their age spectrum or something so 43 but you had been like an army uh, an army medic before yes, that i was in the military for five years okay. uh, before that okay uh, and came here in medical school before that obviously yep, so university okay yeah, wisconsin and okay. then from there went into the uh, medical corps the end of vietnam okay and then, uh, from there came here okay I've been here ever since well, and that's why people would have seen you around. In fact, we have staff here that were birthed by you. Right. Well, I delivered them. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, thank you for clarifying so, that. Yeah, I'm sure their moms but, are going, I'm the one that did yeah, all that. Yeah, really, okay. I'm not going to yeah. take that credit. Yeah, there but, you uh, go. I hear you. Um, well, John, I, this show, I, I've shared with you a little bit about our format, but we always start out the show with a, a, a segment I call uh, My Favorite Things. And so I'm going to rapid fire. There is no right or wrong answer. This is like the Rorschach test of verbal quizzing okay Okay. so whatever comes to your mind that's that's fine um and if we have to edit it out we'll edit it out or or clear whatever but here we go okay first one easy one favorite color favorite color i'd pick two two i'd pick yes i'd pick green green means growth okay and i'd pick yellow because yellow is hope so you can't really decide they're both important gotcha okay growth and hope growth and hope growth and green and i did not know yellow was the color of hope yep matter of fact uh cancer society daffodil that's their that's their flower Uh, okay because it's hope interesting favorite food well that's what's my toughest one really I, i haven't really gravitated uh Towards any favorite food. How about a favorite I, baked good, favorite uh, meal, anything? I sort, of, I sort of eat 
because you got to eat to <laughs> survive. <laughs> and I tend to eat the same things all the time. Okay. So I guess okay. my favorite food would be broccoli slaw. <laughs> broccoli slaw. Okay, yeah. interesting. So that's the that's the one stable thing. Boy, about so there's one person out there right now listening that's going. Finally, somebody <laughs> yeah, else really. that loves broccoli slaw. Like, yeah. I, well, it certainly does have a lot of good elements in it, doesn't it? So, yeah. nutritional yeah. benefit and the like. Uh, how about favorite thing you like to do when you have some free time? Uh, if I were. Um to just do anything and it's really hang out with family. Okay. Yeah. That's uh that's my favorite. Okay. Do you uh, have any favorite family members that we can talk? <laughs> it's grandchildren well, probably, right? Oh, yeah. uh, so, Absolutely. Yeah. It's grandchildren. Yeah, yeah, you have one of those yeah, things. There's no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question. I, I, I'm looking forward to those days. That's yeah, just uh, it changes you pretty dramatically and it brings you it brings you to the moment and it keeps you in the present. Sure. And that's 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 really key. And that's it's kind of an art to learn and I think I'm trying to they're teaching me that sure. to do more sure. of that. Isn't that key? You know, yep. your cuz your children teach you a certain amount of things. Exactly. Uh, some things you like to learn and some things you don't. Uh, I know I did at least. Um, but grandchildren uh, everyone I've known that once they become a yep. grandparent it does it's like a different yep. level. It's like graduate school for yeah. parenting or something. Yeah. Uh, I used to you know when we talked to grandparents or people that had grandchildren and you would, you know, used to, that's all they could talk about. And I, went, yeah. and I didn't have grandchildren. I said, well, this is kind of boring. You know, what is, what's that all about? But now that I'm They want to show that, you pictures, says, yeah. and here she is on the yeah. hobby horse. Yeah, yeah, I don't really. care. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay. But now that I'm there, it's a whole different world. Sure. And, uh, so. You've seen the light. Yeah. So, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it is an interesting it's sort thing. sort of the to, completion of the circle. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And then when you think of the people that are are blessed enough to live long enough to see their great grandchildren, um, yeah. I've thought of a. I just saw, heard a song that I had forgotten about called "Generations" by a, a recording artist, Sarah Groves, and she says, "We can choose to leave either a blessing, a curse, or a blessing to those we will never know." Mm-hmm. So, and just the way that we live our life, and your grandchildren give you that kind of that opportunity, don't you? Right. Exactly, they're going to carry it way beyond. Favorite quote? Do you have a favorite quote or a favorite maxim, a, a motto to live by? Yeah, sort of a. a I would. Um, I have several, but this the one that I am thinking of right now is if you're if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu. <laughs> It's like that old Twilight Zone episode so, to serve man. Is that where we're at? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, in other words, you have to be part of the discussion, okay? And you have to be part of the dialogue, okay? Because otherwise, uh, you have no business uh, sort of dissenting. You might say, sure. So you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And so, sure. be at the table, be part of the solution. And, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I didn't vote. Well, then you really don't have a whole exactly. lot to say. Exactly. Um, so. How about a favorite book? Well, the thing that I—that's another thing. Looking at that, the thing that I read all the time is the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, and so I would and that's say, sort of the def- in the medical circle. Yeah. Is that the definitive? Yeah. That's, that's the- if it, there's been anything new in medicine at all. It's it's usually come through the New England Journal of Medicine at some okay. point. Okay, and so I—that's I, a weekly publication, and so that, I read that all the time. Okay, and if I'm 
looking to someone to read. That's why I pick up. And is that a so. hard thing for a doctor to continue to want to? I I think of that oh, in I computer science. Like it's just so mm-hmm. mind numbing sometimes the uh, amount of information out there to try to grasp. I don't think it's it's difficult because that's our profession, okay. you know. And so uh, you, it's like reading reading about any other kind of profession you're interested oh yeah even the hunting journals or okay. stuff like that sure. i'm sure sure so no it, it, it's not a chore for me at all mm-hmm. i i enjoy uh i'm curious about that and enjoy staying up to date on it okay well this is the question i always wrap up with with all the guests now because i think it's a, a good segue but um what's your, what's one of your favorite memories from childhood uh the the sort of the favorite uh, the thing that came to my mind at first and has come to my mind uh, a fair amount lately is just the fact that we, the time that we spent uh, with my brother and my father uh, and we we boxed back in those days really? like boxed fisticuff. a lot yeah okay he was a, he was a good boxer he was a Golden Glove boxer okay and so he that's what we played other sports too all the time but okay. boxing was sort of that thing that that sort of taught us kind of what life was really about wow and it really Interesting. yeah and, and so like it, the real formal style of boxing? yeah oh yeah so, yeah, yeah. It, with golden gloves i guess you'd have to be yeah right? so it was yeah boxing is is a real art pugilism and, a, don't they call it <laughs> yeah and it, the, again the the goal wasn't to hurt the other person but right. the, it's it's again was a sport and it was a bit of a dance, and and so we sort of learned sort of three things that I kind of took away from that. And is number one is you don't rat, you know. And back in those days, ratting was you know sort of squealing on somebody. Sure. Now I think the term probably better would be you know you have each other's back. Okay. And the other thing that you don't flinch, so you learn to sort of take a punch. Okay. And you don't do any of that, and then. The last thing, and I think this is probably the biggest thing that I really carried over into medicine, is you show up. You just hmm. show up. You're not sure what's going to happen, but you still show up. Okay. You know, if you put the gloves on, you're there for the fight. I'm curious, the ratting part of it doesn't quite resonate with me. How does that apply to boxing? How did you learn that in boxing? Uh, you, you just assume responsibility for the issue. Okay. And if someone sort of beats you that day, they're better than you are that day, that's fine. You take it. Okay. And there's always another day. You keep sort of coming back. But you don't say, oh, you know, blame him, blame this, blame that. Blame, okay. You know. okay. And it's just so, sort of a... More of an integrity kind of uh, issue. So it's kind of kind of along lines of taking that shot too, yeah. right? I mean, just accepting. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Yep. So and so your dad was teaching you and your brother that, and right. then would you you would box with him as well as with each other? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Boy, that. Was yeah. Scary. So if we had a, an argument. <laughs> And I was the youngest, so I usually got the bad end of it. So they could, uh, yeah, they could do anything they wanted to to me. So you corrected pretty quickly. Huh? Yeah, that's right. So, I learned to uh, uh, boy. learn a little humility. So if there'd be a fourth thing, it was humility. <laughs> oh boy! Well, you know, we can never learn enough of that now, yeah, can we? Right. So right. Uh, okay. Well, let's segue from that into the boxing match of being a medical professional because it's mm-hmm. it's uh, certainly as you've already alluded to. There's some real parallels there. Um, so as a, uh, a, let's talk about that a little bit in terms of how those boxing experiences have transferred to your medical experience. Do you, do you see yourself boxing, you know, on a, a regular basis just in your medical profession? Yeah, I, I think, 
I think it certainly uh, gives you a perspective. It gives you an attitude uh, in that you just sort of you stay calm, you stay focused. Even if someone, if it's not going your way, you don't lose your cool. Right. You have to. Uh, you have to understand that that you're in a in a fight, and it's it's going to be that way. Yeah. And yeah. how do you? You know, after the fight, you always have to be your own worst critic. What did I do right? What did I do wrong? Right. And those are the kind of things that keep you awake at night. Right. And how do you deal with loss? Right. Because in, in all of our lives, you know, we're, that's really a constant sort of um, thing that you're dealing with is is loss throughout it. But I think sure. particularly in healthcare, you know, because you really do – Win a few, and but you lose a bunch, right? And well, and they're life and death situations, exactly. Oftentimes. That's so, yeah, um, right. Which you know, a lot of us talk about. Well, I lost that sale. Well, that's nothing compared to losing right. someone because you may have missed something, right? Yeah. So, how do you maintain that resiliency, right? Say and and keep keep coming back. Sure. Right. So, do you find um, that there? Were there models of leadership of medical professionals that you think helped kind of shape how you coped with those things over the years and how you you kept them from consuming you? Because I, I mean, I, I'll just be outright. I, I think uh, there's a tendency for the common folk like myself. I'm kind of uncommonly common, but um, <laughs> <laughs> those of us that look at medical professionals, you know, oftentimes they have the, the God syndrome, sure. you know, where they're, you know, well, I'm the medical professional here, mm-hmm. I know, you know, or the surgeons, oh my gosh, you know, surgeons have the huge reputation of being, you know, sure. well, you know, and and to some extent, really, rightly so, when you mm-hmm. can do the things that a neurosurgeon oh, yeah. can do, yep. you have to have a lot of confidence. It, um, yep. So it's just, it goes part and parcel with it. Um, and But the thing that has always kind of bothered me is where's the humility where's the understanding yeah. that if you screw up it's a lot bigger deal um you know and and to, how do you balance that yeah. what, how do you go to work you know knowing that you today might be the day where the worst thing that yeah. ever happened happens and that's that's always a haunt i'll be honest with you that's always a haunt it's the uncertainty of a situation because we know each and every day we can do everything right uh, and we still know things won't turn out yeah. the way we would hope they'd turn out and the way the family would hope they or whatever. Right. And so right. how do you deal with that? And so you have to constantly be your own worst critic in that regard. Um, and what, unfortunately what happens, and I don't think not just in healthcare, but in other professions too, then we start to get cl- smaller and we start to contract over time. And if you don't, if you don't learn how to deal with that and basically share it with your partners or share it like any other relationship, share it with someone who has something in common, who knows what you're going through, who understands what you're going through. Sure. That's the key, key thing. And so, as, so that's why we see burnout. You know, burnout yeah. is very, very common in the healthcare profession. Sure. And that's that some people, that is a constant, constant sort of burn. Well, and having that kind of vulnerability to admit, I'm really struggling with this. Yes. Um, I mean, I see that in the uh, the psychiat- psychiatric mental health area in particular, you know, how people have had to learn, you know, depression is not just, it's not a defective thing. You're right. not, you don't need to be embarrassed about struggling with depression. Mm-hmm. People were for how many hundreds right. of years. Right. Um, and now as we've understood the science of brain chemistry much better, we yeah. still 
learning quite a bit, I'm <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. Um, getting that understanding that what you're going through is is very normal. It's right. very understandable. Right. Um, treat it like a broken arm, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so you know, and so getting back sort of to the whole notion of, of burnout, there are really sort of three kind of pillars. You know, you have to have some autonomy uh, over your practice. You have mm-hmm. to have some way to think that you can kind of modify the practice to fit your style and how that works for you and what okay. works best for you. And that's again in our community here, I think we've been able to do that because we're not owned by someone else; we're an independent thing, and so we have that. Um, with Prairie Clinic in particular, right? Right, and the hospital. Okay. and Yeah, so we're all basically independent, and uh, that, I think, has really worked to our advantage. Then we have that ownership, and, and we can make the right decisions, and makes us nimble and all of that. Have you so found that that helps you to police one another? Oh, or two absolutely. Of, of monitoring the burnout right. factor? and exactly. Uh, and, exactly. hey, wait, you're not talking enough about things. That's what's, critical. What's yep. going on here? So we have sort of a rapid response team, you know, okay. that we will see, okay, some sort of bad event happened. We'll touch base with that physician or that nurse or whoever and start to go through where are you, what's you're dealing with, and then keep in contact with them. So that's an okay. important thing. The other thing that's really is por- important is relatedness. And, uh, you know, we sort of um, uh, don't really, you know, we're, oftentimes when someone else is sort of telling you how to practice and you're spending time with the computer just checking boxes and checking boxes, you don't get the reciprocity of the relationship with the patient. Sure. In other words, we went to medical school really you know, with the notion that we we're going to help people and we would, you know, take our information. And that's another thing, competency. We would take that information, make good clinical judgments, and we were a competent physician. Sure. We were a competent provider. But now our competencies oftentimes are how many clicks we can put on, what the billing thing and stuff like that. So that's all gone. Yeah. You know, th- yeah. we have to be careful that it doesn't go away. But it's challenging sure. right now because of the metrics, really, that are gone into the Well, on the expense thing. of it all. Yeah. I mean, when you you know look at the equipment that you can't even really buy anymore, you have to lease it because it's right. so expensive right. uh, and what that does to the overall. Is that something... What what does control that? I mean, is it is it just is our technology overwhelming our economy? Is that uh, <laughs> yeah? Terms, well, can, we just can't afford our technology anymore. I don't know. Well, I, I think uh, that we're evolving certainly, and the technology has you know the computer systems basically evolved as an accounting kind of tool, right? And, and it's sort of I think as AI becomes more established, we're going to see more of the clinical side of things start to evolve certainly and i think our decisions will be more in that direction rather than you know how much uh how much money did we produce or what our rvus were for that particular month etc so So, ai artificial intelligence becomes kind of the ultimate resource for consultation and reference material exactly and i I think that that's going to be a huge uh, benefit for both the patients and the and the providers, sure. Is there a threat there? Do you think at all to the the spirit well, I, that human beings still add to the equation? The, the, the I don't I don't think there'll be a threat. It's like anything else. There'll be a challenge when everything when anything challenges uh, sort of your decision making process. But I think again the the opportunities far far outweigh the the challenges. And again, it's how we deal with our social sciences and right. what do we. Uh, and I think that brings us back to the whole 
polarization of things that we have to really realize that there's tremendous opportunity here if we use it properly. Sure. You know, I, I you know, just with the whole internet, I thought oh, years ago that oh, wonderful. Now globally we can start to attack problems. But you see that, you know, we're not thinking globally so much anymore. We're right. thinking too sequestered. We have to broaden our horizons right. and how do we include everybody as far as getting to the pandemic how do we you know how do we adjust to this as a world it's not just as a country right well it it struck me that we live in the information age and yet we are so restrictive with our information that that is just the antithesis of what you know even facebook which was supposed to have this opportunity for you know social media social mm-hmm. connectedness and it's become a divisive factor people use it to attack it's weaponized yeah. you know which is interesting that the human psyche seems to find a way to do that right yeah, yeah. information is power and yeah. you know and so that that's how it's being used rather than as collaboration Right. and understanding right seeking the higher things folks my guest today is dr uh, john mcauliffe we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors and come back and get into some more meat and potatoes so don't go anywhere we'll be right back here's something important you need to know about mcfarland's at 780 carolina street in sauk city from our power equipment farm parts and service departments we're always rolling From our biggest farm equipment to your home tractor, we'll take good care of you from sales to service, no matter what the size. McFarland's, one block south of Highway 12 at 780 Carolina Street, where service is a family tradition. Now, we're back here at Frame of Reference. Thanks for staying with us. My guest today is Dr. John McAuliffe, a 43-year veteran of the Sauk Prairie area, uh, has helped deliver multiple babies and all kinds of things in the area. Um, John, you also had leadership with a uh, a heroin and opiate response team in the area, right? Uh, What were some of the challenges with that in leadership? Uh, I I know that was uh, uh, a tough thing around here just even having a, a, a house dedicated, an area dedicated where people could be brought to uh, help to reintegrate them into uh, normal life, I guess I'll call it. Uh, and it, just a lot of struggles there. How was, what was that experience like for well, you as a leader? Yeah. So, again, that, it's been a very rewarding experience overall. I can uh, – the community came together on this, and this is like – solving any other or at least addressing it it's, we didn't solve it but of course but we are addressing it sure. and it's an ongoing effort of course but so, uh, certain people in the community that were very interested uh, we all got together and started sitting around and talking and sort of how can we best uh, address this and we got the different silos that were involved together okay we got the police force we got the school system got the hospital course and uh you know there were lawyers there there was just everybody there so they all got our we got our heads together and say how can we make this happen and i think also a critical um point of the sort of that whole dealing with the opiate uh, and any substance use disorder is is really it's a disease mm-hmm. and the, a critical thing is to take the judgment out of that equation so in other words people get substance use disorder just like they get diabetes just like they get COPD or hypertension or whatever right and fortunately we're starting to and we have good medicine now that that helps 
with that disease. But a critical thing that also has to happen with the, it's not just the medicine, but the whole wraparound type of program. In other words, you alluded to the uh, the home that, that we have established for it, mm-hmm. where they can go and reside and get healthy and be part of a uh, positive, supportive kind of uh, unit. Uh, that's all part of that. And so connection, in other words, uh, the opposite really of of addiction isn't necessarily sobriety, it's connection. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the Sauk Prairie area has been really um, instrumental in that they've been really bought into the idea. I understand that. that. Yep, that connection, it's about connection, connection, connection. Boy, Alienation, isolation, and shame are the yeah. two are the yeah. three real problems. Well, and it, it strikes me that uh, part of the difficulty with an addiction is the tendency to judge, to say, uh, you know, well, they chose that. They never should have done that in the first place. Exactly. They shouldn't have hung out with those people. Exactly. They, you know, they're the ones that ruined their lives by, you know, and, and there is, you know, I suppose you have to not completely absolve a person from making some bad choices, but at the same point, people don't understand the power of that substance and the, the the nature of an addiction is such that you you may make some bad choices but holy cow that's like saying I chose to make a right turn here and it mm-hmm. led me into a really horrible neighborhood and I deserve to have my car put on turn you know put on fire right. because of that right it's uh, yep yep and, it, and it's also oftentimes built upon what what else has happened in their life you know there's what's called the ACE scores and those are sort of childhood experiences that were adverse, okay. and they bring that then into their adult life, and oftentimes substances become a way of dealing uh, with that. That happened experiences way prior to that. Okay, you know we have, um, and it becomes you know anxiety, depression, and stuff like that. How do how do people deal with it? And if gradually as they become less and less connected. Uh, substances become more uh, sure. uh, priority for them. Well, when you think of the euphoria that a lot of these drugs induce, uh, there are, I, I think we're going to actually run into something similar probably with virtual reality when that yeah. becomes even more uh, you know, virtual than it is or more realistic than yep. it is now that, uh, you know, Star Trek and their hollow suites, you know, who's going to want to leave the hollow suite, right? Exactly. Uh, you know. And so then, then you start this whole, you know, and that's that's the whole neurotransmitter thing and dopamine release and so that's what really addiction is really built around is is addiction to uh, certain activities that get us to release dopamine and the dopamine is the joy the pleasant kind of neurotransmitter and we all want that and we get that in various ways but you know, and we do experiment with certain things. We say, "Yeah, that's okay." We know it's not a smart idea, but I, yeah, I got this under control. Right. But then over time, that those neurotransmitters start it starts to take more and more activity to get the same dopamine release. And then what happens? Those those neurotransmitters start to downregulate, and then we start to experiment with other drugs and say, "Wow, that." That was a lot, lot better, and right, so, right. and eventually, then we develop tolerance, and then eventually we get addicted, okay. and then addiction—just how powerful that can be—is would be analogous to like my telling you, don't take a breath, just don't breathe, just hold your breath as long as you can. That would be equivalent to my telling you, don't use heroin, don't use heroin. Okay, n- now you can breathe. 
you know, you get to a point that that's how strong this is. I got to take a breath. I got to use heroin or other similar drug. Right, right. And so when that's when you have the disease of addiction and you no longer have control over that you, use of that and your whole life becomes obsessed with getting that drug again. Yeah. So now let's take this into the 21st century again mm-hmm. with uh, we had talked about that actually in one of the episodes of Mornings at McFarland's how uh, COVID in many ways mirrors uh, at least our societal or cultural response to COVID mirrors some of the things you dealt with and uh, have dealt with in the opioid addiction programs, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, So what's our addiction here? What's our our, uh, thing that we're holding on to that's making COVID so hard, do you think? It's the... It's, again, our emotional response to that. We have a, a structure in our brain called the amygdala, and basically the amygdala will take in all the kind of our five senses. Will come, it comes into the amygdala, and we process that sensory input, and then we have the ability to either defer it up to our prefrontal cortex, which are, are, is our more logical kind of way of thinking things, trying to sort it out, make sense of everything, or we defer it down, which is our fight-and-flight response. Now, unfortunately, the fight-and-flight response is about three times the speed of the prefrontal cortex response. And so that's what, what we default to. And so we're constantly defaulting. And the greater the threat, which COVID is, the greater the threat is that increases our anxiety and our depression because that's what we're constantly defaulting to. Well, and I just read something not too long ago how it really is critical. It was critical. It is critical to our survival that we do have that quick of a response because that fight or flight is what kept us alive uh, before we we had the ability to you know destroy most of our you know natural enemies whether it be a lion or a tiger or a bear oh my um, you know so it's it's not something that we oh you're just thinking too much with your lower brain well we're wired that way exactly right? we're um, definitely wired that way so to to counter that is very difficult. I mean, there are meditation techniques. There are multiple things that will let you do it. But it strikes me one of the hardest things is to get people to even realize that they're doing it. That's right. And the greater the threat, the quicker it happens. It's like if you're driving down the road and you're talking to somebody and a deer jumps out in front of the car, you don't say to that person, oh, well, there's a deer. We're going to slow down here. And right. then, no, you hit the brake and boom. <laughs> that's that reflex that's going on. Sure. matter of fact, that's the reptilian brain that you're referring to. Okay. And that's what, how we all started with that. And so we're just reacting to our environment just in a reflex fashion. You know, and then after that, we developed the the mammalian brain, right. and the mammalian brain is sort of um, it has a focal point of about eight to twelve inches, basically. And if you ever delivered any babies, you understand that that's where the bonding takes place. As soon as you delivered, they're looking for how, starting to nurse. That's where my nourishment is. That's where my security is. Okay. And so that's that's that wiring. Okay. And so when that gets frustrated, then that's when they, you see anxiety and stuff like that. Sure. And so sure. and then on on top of that. Now, we've had our, our currently our human brain, our cognitive brain, and that's probably a result of fire, basically. Because now, with the advent of fire, we could cook. And so we didn't have to spend all our time out grazing in the fields sure. and stuff of that nature. And so that brain started to evolve. We could sit around the fire and cook and start to converse. 
and tell stories. And, yes, and, and so discuss things. Yeah, and make <laughs> right and make judgment about things and plan a day and enjoy each other. Yeah. yeah. So uh, well, and then to be mindful of one another. Exactly. That, uh, that's a, a tremendous thing. That uh, yes. You know, do, do you find I I'm going way out on a limb here, but it has has your scientific and and physical understanding of the chemistry and the uh, um, just the biological functions that are going on there. Do you find that that uh, explains the spiritual essence of us as well? Or is there something there that you don't think we'll quite ever be able to, you know, Einstein talked about, uh, you know, you can't uh, create or destroy energy. It strikes me that there is an energy thing there that you can show the biochemical chemical responses going on, but does it really explain that essence that says, aha, you know, I thought of something new here, or oh, hey, that tells me blah blah blah. Is there? Do you see that in in your? Passing? Oh, I, I think I think that the more we understand of how the brain functions, the more that we're going to be able to explore that whole realm, the emotional realm, the spiritual realm. I think that's that's a huge part of it. There'll never be. I think there'll always be that exploration. There'll always be that creativity because that enhances the growth of our really our prefrontal cortex. Yeah, and that's what yeah. we try to get people to do is to do more. Use your imagination more. Use your creativity more. Yeah, you know. And how do you even developing say if, if people have a traumatic brain syndrome. You know, oftentimes learning to knit, and so how do you sort of incorporate different parts of your brain at the same sure. time? Learn to, learning to play a, an instrument. How do you, you know, this all neuroplasticity is what right. it's called. That's a real exciting part of, of where this is where it's all going. And that's uh, actually the, uh, the knitting and, and uh, learning to play an instrument. Those have been shown now to be uh, excellent uh, uh, techniques for fighting Alzheimer's. Uh, Correct. Uh, uh, yep. So as you find certain areas are deteriorating, that actually can help to enhance yep. and slow that down, right? Correct. Um, yep. I just saw an interesting TED Talk on that, too, the whole uh, uh, brain imaging work that they're doing to, and uh, helping uh, physicians to understand there are very uh, – recognizable things that happen to the brain with certain illnesses and uh, you know to learn how to read those images in ways that help you determine the treatment mm -hmm. uh, is has been critical in some areas um, so and that sort of it brings up an interesting point about um, just in how we deal with the covid issue and stuff and all all of our behavior is really sort of for one of two reasons either we do things to protect ourselves Okay, and that gets back to the mammalian and the reptilian kind of response, or we do things to learn. And the two are really mutually exclusive. So in other words, the more you're protecting, the less you're learning. And the more you're learning, the less you're protecting. Okay. And so I think, again, as we evolve as a species, we really, again, what am I asking, your, you need to ask ourselves, what am I, what am I learning from this? How can I make this a learning experience rather than a protecting, just protecting experience? Sure. And when we're in that fight and flight mode, that's that's the protective mode, and that's oftentimes what we've been modeled. And so we, and that's like I say, is the faster part of our brain. So we go there, we go there quickly, and rather than saying, "Wait a minute, I have to look at 
you know, I have to look at the data. What do I know, and where do I go from here? Well, it strikes me that that that's even uh, um, perhaps a, a major failing of our leadership uh, across globally mm-hmm. uh, is that our leaders have been focusing upon protective measures instead of on learning measures Correct. and understanding measures. Uh, you know, ways to build, which you know, I guess ultimately it can see there's a fundamental lack of trust. Uh, you know, and so how do you, as a leader, how have you bridged that gap of the the lack of trust that that I can learn something, or that this person could teach me something, uh, you know, or that oh, I might actually be better at the end of this and not totally, you know, behind the eight ball. You know, how does yeah. that- there has to be an integrity to that whole process? In other words, the leaders have to really step forward and say, okay, this is what well, this is what we currently understand. There's a lot we do understand. There's a lot we don't understand. And but this is where we're at right now. So based on this, this is our best decision. You know, Colin Powell said, you know, there's this sweet point between forty percent and seventy percent. And don't hmm. make don't make up your mind until you have at least forty percent of the data. But don't wait till you have 100% either because then it's too late. So it's between that 40 and 70% of the data that you have to make a decision to do something. And same way with, with COVID or any other crisis. Sometimes you have, to, you have to act. And then you say, okay, this is based on what I know, my current understanding, this is what we do. And then you share it with it. If they say, okay, well, we have this to add to it, okay, I need to know that. Right. If you're the leader, right. what is that? And then you keep you keep discussing it. You keep dialogue. You know, keep that dialogue going. It's when people don't come to you, the leader, with dialogue, you've lost them, right. because that tells you uh, either they don't trust you, or they or you don't care. And that's what's. I'm afraid that's what's happened with our leadership right now. We don't have that unified approach that this is our best way to go about this. It may change, but for now, this is what we must do. You talked about that early on um, several months ago, that as the COVID situation was evolving, that people had to be careful about choosing what information they would trust. Um, What would be your advice? How do you choose the information that you trust that you will act upon as a leader? And how do you choose to the stuff that really should be dismissed or should is, you know, irrelevant or just, you know, confuses the matter and doesn't really help to move us towards a a resolution that's going to be positive. Yeah. So again, I I read the literature, uh, excuse me, the New England Journal of Medicine is a great source, but the CDC, you know, in this kind of a setting, the CDC is, is a, is a good source. I, you know, the, Funding of the CDC and stuff of that nature has been questionable, and there's been some questionable leadership with that. Okay, I get that, but there's still the authority on it, and they're, yeah. they're still trying to put it out there the best way they can. Sure. And well, National so. Institute of Health, is that uh, Dr. Yep. Fauci's yep. organization? Yep. So, um, I mean, these are factually driven. Uh, you know, I, I, I always find it interesting that the, the scientific community uh, oftentimes finds itself at odds with the faith community and vice versa. And that, that always strikes me as so unfortunate because both sides have something to offer 
both the other side. If yeah. we can just learn to, this is really good for this, and this is really good for that. Um, faith is very helpful in wellness and oh. healing, uh, you know, tremendously so, right? I mean, you see that on a regular basis. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, and again, getting back to the addiction, right. that's, that's a part of it. Uh, again, the alienation, the isolation, uh, and the shame. It's, you know, and right. the way to connect, I think that's so critical to connect with something greater than yourself. Right. You know, and right. I think even the the greatest of scientists will say that. Fauci will say that. Yeah. Uh, they all say that. They're, you know, some of them are criticized. Oh, you're, no, that's not true at all. Right. We all use that as a foundation to go, to go forward. Right. Well, and that's um, been one of the great uh, destructiveness elements of covid mm-hmm. is it has affected our a lot of our group identification the things that we are connected to that help us to connect to greater things beyond ourselves right exactly and uh, it's also been a problem because now people are dying alone yeah. and that's the worst thing i you know i have probably oh eight to ten people on hospice all the time and i probably have probably one or two people that die each week uh, and so in dealing with the families, I, I, I guarantee them two things. Number one, I, I guarantee that their loved one won't be in a great deal of pain, will be able to manage their pain. And number two is they won't be alone. And that's the key, key thing, right. is they're not alone. Right. And as, as, as that whole process, the dying process sort of evolves, what I really see is, is the physical side of our nature sort of deteriorates. But the spiritual side, it's amazing to watch that sort of escalate, right. to grow. Right. And that's, I think, the real key. You know, hospice, the grace, all those, they've been tremendous in how they can come in and, and really foster that spiritual and that, that uh, companionship, et cetera. It's been a huge uh, bonus to our I, society. I would think so, yeah. yeah. The, are, are there lessons there that you think the uh, should be applied to just the general population right now? The um, I think about, you know, the people that are still deciding not to wear a mask, um, I, you know, which is, I, it's hard for me to not just be like, ah, but I, I want to understand that they're just not there yet. They're just... Uh, yeah, so... Um, the most therapeutic tool we have in medicine is the relationship. And it's important to even with those people to maintain that relationship. And all you need is two things to have a therapeutic relationship. And number one is you need a sense of connection. And by connection, I mean pos- all I mean is positive regard. And to have positive regard, you have to take the judgment out of that equation. Because the instant you judge, you quit listening. And they know it. The addict knows it. The other person knows it. They just, they just know it. So you have to, and I, without, it's just a little thing that I do that I find useful for me. It sort of resets my brain. And sometimes if I, if I have a patient that I have any sort of, oh, no, here kind of, what <laughs> sort of kind of thing. And I, this is going to be I fun. Wish, I wish I, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I tell myself, just like me. I say, just like me. In other words, this person wants to be happy. This person wants to be peaceful, just like me. Right. And that changes my thinking. Right. Just for that instant. Right. So, and the second thing that has to happen is to focus on what you have in common. Differences are meaningless. Differences are superficial. So, in other words, what we have in common in people who don't want to wear masks 
is I think we we do want to be happy. We do want to be peaceful. We want people to live, mm-hmm. right? We don't want to be causing people to die. They sincerely think they're not causing people to die. They right. just don't want to go through the discomfort. Right. So maybe that's as far as you get there that particular time. And you have to realize, too, that you're upset because they're not fitting your agenda. And so I have to look, if it were me, I'd have to look at, okay, what's my agenda here? I wish they were okay. But they're obviously not going to do that. I'm not going to sacrifice the relationship with that. And that's the other important point. An apology, an apology tells the other person that the relationship matters. And so if I would overstep my bounds and be over-responsible and take them down this road where they you know, just totally turn them up, I would, I would want to say, I'm sorry, I, 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 didn't, I don't want that to happen. I value our relation. Let's keep talking about this if we can some other time. Right. And you'd be amazed what that means to right. them. I said, okay, we got that. You know? right. So you know, originally you know, we talked about you got to be at the table, so you keep the dialogue going. That's right. the key thing. Right. There's a, um, a gentleman by the name of uh, George Thompson, I believe, uh, has a book called Verbal Judo, and he talks mm-hmm. about the five fundamental things, and one of them is that everyone wants to be treated with respect. Yep. Um, and, you know, I, I, that's one of my great failings, honestly, is when someone isn't doing what I've already gone through all the thinking about to yeah. determine this is the best thing to do, sure. when they don't conform to that, I just, you know, I, yeah. uh, I don't, why can't you understand? Well, um, and that's the key word. And that's, that's the other thing that we all have in common. We want to be understood. Mm-hmm. And so to that person, say, well, let me, I, I don't understand what you, is, well, I don't understand what you say. Is this what you're saying? And then you reiterate, no, that's not what I'm saying. So, okay, but what about, the, yeah, okay, that's what, I, the, okay, got it. Okay. Which you know. I could see people think, I, I, wanted, I don't want to be encumbered by a mask, and I don't like what it does to my face. And I mean, yeah, I, I okay. get all of that. Yep. Um, you know, but then you have to ask yourself a bigger question, right? The bias as a leader, how do you challenge biases? Because it strikes me that that's one of our our difficulties in leading people and building consensus and getting everyone pulling in the same direction is the bias aspect, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, but you have to welcome the bias okay. because they have a message and it they challenge mediocrity. And I appreciate that because they challenge me to rethink, okay, what am I really trying to do here? And is this really the right way? And you constantly need to, you know, really the major problem in medicine is most of mistakes are made not because of lack of information or anything or any other procedure. They're made because we what's called drop anchor. In other words, we decide what we make up our minds up what's going on here and we don't rethink. We don't start to think what what else could this differential be? You know, well, could it be other things? We got to constantly discipline ourselves to start to think. And that's what those people help us do to rethink, you know, what sort of 
tendencies you're making or what decisions you're making. Okay. And that has that really has value. Will AI be able to do that? Yes, that will definitely help us okay. with that. Because it will look at more options than we could possibly even remember, right? Yep. Or uh, yeah. similarities. Yeah, and then there has to be some sorting that will always go into that. I mean, AI isn't going to replace us. It's going gonna, it's gonna to facilitate our thinking. Augment. Rather than, yeah. yeah. I, what's it going to be like to get into an argument with... <laughs> Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that diagnosis. Yeah. How? Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. And then what that's going to look like in the courtroom. <laughs> well, Hal thought we should do it this way, but Hal's just a bunch of circuits. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that'll be an interesting day. Uh, folks, my guest today is uh, Dr. John McAuliffe. I'm going to try to wrap up today's broadcast with uh, the, the question that I ask all my guests. Um, John, you know, you've been practicing medicine for 43 years. Uh, we're doing some practicing before that and some studying before that. Uh, I, I, I know having just turned 60 not that long ago, I, I've begun to realize that there are fewer days ahead of me than there are behind me. Um, when you look at that, when you look at the, the span of your work and your career and the things that you've been able to do, is there one thing that you would like to be remembered for? Not that you're gone already, or I don't mean this isn't morbid time, uh, yeah. you know. But is there, do you look back at that and yeah. think, you know, I hope people will remember me for this, or I, I feel best about having accomplished this? Is there anything of that of that realm? Uh, that's pretty. Um, yeah, I think that. I, I I just feel really um, grateful to to be practicing medicine. I, I honestly don't feel there's any greater privilege than to take care of another human being. Hmm. And when you know, I saw that question: How would I measure my success? <laughs> I thought, oh, you know. And so I'm going to bring up another quote. Okay, and, and Mother Teresa. She okay. said this is that we don't we don't do great things in this life. We do many small things with great love. And I sincerely feel that. And that feeling alone is what sort of sustains me and keeps me going. And uh, when I think about retiring, I said, no, I would miss that. And I uh, don't want to do that. But to to put any other kind of metric on it, I, I... couldn't do that but it's just that overall sure you had a uh had shared with me before the broadcast a story of your dad and how he was a recipient of the silver star and something about what you just said resonated with me in terms of how your dad made a series of simple and profound choices on the battlefield of world war ii that had profound uh, implications, not only on you personally, but um, can you share a little bit about that story? I, I just I think that's a, such an inspiration for the common person out there who, your dad was a pretty normal guy, right? He yep. was, yeah. uh, but he received a silver star, which people may yeah. not even know what that means, right? Yeah, so he was, he was drafted in World War II, spent three and a half years in New Guinea in the Philippines, and came back, and his back was broken in three places. He had malaria. Uh, my mother was pregnant with their second child, uh, my brother, and she got two letters that he was missing in action, presumed dead. 
Uh, but the night that he got the Silver Star, and by the way, the Silver Star, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest, and the Silver Star is the next highest. And he okay. said, had he been killed that night, he'd I'm probably would have gotten the crest. But he wasn't. <laughs> he said he didn't want that to happen. So this was told, second place. He said, huh? I told your mom I was coming home, so he, <clears throat> he came yeah. home. I knew she'd find me at yeah. the other. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the night he got that, so the communication the wires that were. Uh, controlling the artillery that were protecting the area where he was were cut. So, and the enemy was bandsawing basically. So he was on the foxhole nearest the attack. And it says in there what other disregard for his own safety and oblivious of fire on all sides, he halted the advance until communications could be restored. And then during a counterattack, his company was caught in a 150 millimeter mortar fire, which woke destroyed his company and he then worked his way again through continuous fire removing all the dead and the wounded to a place of safety i'm sorry i get emotional but yeah so you don't leave anybody out there is the point right you don't leave anybody out there right and isn't that's my fear my greatest remorse is that we don't leave anybody out there Right. Um, you know, coming to the decision to wear a mask may have nothing at all to do with you, but it may have everything to do with someone you never know. Because your dad's yeah. uh, job as a soldier, he not only far surpassed that, but think of the lives that he saved. Think of the families that came into being as a result of their, you know, their husband, their boyfriend, whatever, yeah. coming home. Uh, you know, we just don't know, right? The right. the impact that a simple decision of I, I'm here to do a job, I'm going to do the job, and I know it's dangerous, but somebody's got to do it, right? Yeah. yeah, and he was, like I say, he was a very regular guy. He was, there was nothing... He would just be like anybody else on the street, and we all, you know, you, we all ask ourselves, could we do something like that? Right, and yeah. that's always a question, of course. But I'm impressed by the spirit of people, and uh, and I think we all have that in us. And even though we question it, and we question it for sure in others too, it's there. I mean, we all want to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think what gets confused is when we start to feel, you know, anxiety, depression, and we start to let that, let that reptilian brain take over rather than saying, okay. You know, there are times when you have to let the reptilian brain, but that's why we train. Right. That's why we keep doing things where we're not expected, we're just expected to act and react, you know, and doing like CPR, doing certain other things. We train as a team and we function as a team and we know what each other person is doing and it's just a pure reflex, but it's done right. Right. And we do that because it's the right. And after a while, after that's all said and done, then you sort it out and say, okay, what could we do differently? But it's the other thing that I think people, if they look at the news and just see how many people are doing the right thing and trying to do the right thing, that's re- that's really reassuring. So, and I, I think we're going to learn from this. I really do. And that's certainly the challenge that we have to do. And that's what leadership has to bring out. So, okay, what do we learn from this? And right. how can we right. make sure this doesn't happen? Because it's going to keep, the virus is going to keep evolving. And if it's not this virus, it's going to be another virus. Right. And so there's always going to be this threat. And so how do we, how do we deal with that? Right. And we, 
Uh, I have faith that we're going to rise to the occasion. We we really, I think, need to do an entire show just talking about this virus and what it has taught us, because it's uh, it strikes me that there's a lot of metaphorical and uh, and symbolical, uh, you know. Uh, understanding there of who we are what we are uh and how this thing has dismantled a lot of what we thought we were um but also has given us an opportunity to see what we are and what we need to do so john thank you so much for joining us on frame of uh always a joy um always more to talk about so that's uh, that's a good thing so uh, we'll be right back with our closing thoughts don't go anywhere here on frame of reference on max fm's digital network time to support small businesses and save big with max fm big deals discount certificates from the max fm big deal store will save you up to 50 percent off retail every day of the week local restaurants and wineries healthy living and spa services gifts for the holidays and a whole lot more new deals are added weekly check it out now at maxfmbigdeals.com that's maxfmbigdeals.com start shopping and start saving The tradition of medical practice is summed up in an oath that physicians take as part of graduating from medical school. It says in part, I will remember that I do not treat a fever chart, a cancerous growth, but a sick human being whose illness may affect the person's family and economic stability. My responsibility includes these related problems if I am to care adequately for the sick. Physicians like Dr. McAuliffe understand that all too well after practicing medicine for many years. But what would happen if we all took a version of the Hippocratic Oath and remembered that just in walking through life, we, all of us, share some responsibility for the health of others? Things like wearing masks or not wearing masks aren't about comfort or agreement as much as they are about caretaking. Putting the health of ourselves and others at the top of our to-do lists. What if our frame of reference was one in which we felt and took responsibility for the care of others and our actions told others that we see them as something other than their illnesses? Wouldn't a life lived that way help us to enjoy life and art, to be respected while we live, and remembered with affection thereafter? That's part of the oath, too, you know. Thanks for listening.